Have you ever had a dream that was dashed? Have you ever had something that you really, really wanted to happen and you got really, really, really close to it? Maybe a day away, maybe $10 away, maybe a yes away, maybe, maybe 10 steps away. Have you ever had something that you really wanted to take place and then that dream was dashed, it was taken away? Have you ever had ambitious dreams only to see them derailed in some form or fashion. Have you ever had a dream job that you wanted and it was so close, yet it wasn't offered to you? Have you ever had a, the desire to have a, a dream marriage and then to see it fizzle away because maybe someone else asked her or asked him or you find yourself in a separate path in the midst of this marriage? Has a dream home ever been bankrupted for you? You finally got it. There it is. Four bedrooms. It's there. It's there. A separate room. A a master bath that's on the other side of the house, away from the kids, only to be bankrupted. Have you ever had the dream of seeing your kids trust Jesus Christ and long and run after him, only to see it taken away by a poor choice and and they're on this path away from God? Have you ever had the dream vacation that you've planned for, talked about, saved for, for months, maybe even years, and then the unexpected medical bill appears and it gets wiped away? Have you ever had a dream business venture? I mean, you're so close. You've charted out. You put a business plan together. You've lost sleep over it. You've gotten counselors to talk about it. I mean, it's right there. It's, it's right there. Only to be re- railroaded by the other three businesses that showed up just like yours before yours launched. Have have you ever just wanted something so badly that you didn't get it because of him or her or this or that? What do you do in those kind of times? What do you do in those kind of times when the dream relationship, the dream possession, the dream place to live, the dream thing to happen to your child, the dream venture, the dream health report. What do you do in those times when all of a sudden your life is wrecked and your dreams are dashed? Where do you go from there? What do you do when everything's turned upside down? How do you get back on the road when God appears to be far away? Well, I got some good news for you today. There is a way to recover. There is a way to get back on your feet, and there is a way to climb that mountain again and to achieve that dream. Grab your Bibles, and I'll show you. Turn to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3. If you need a Bible, hold your hand up, and we'll turn to, the ushers will give you one. We live in a society that loses dreams, Think with me if you can. Think if you have small children or grandchildren or siblings or when you were a child. When you were a child, how many times has someone come to you and ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? How many times has someone said, I want to be this when I grow up? 
How many times have you been asked that question? How many times have you been asked that question personally as you continue to grow? We have this term in our lingua that we use in America that says that you can grow up. And you know what we call them? We call us grown-ups. And so all across this room and all across the link and all across the world are what we label as grown-ups. What's a grown-ups? How do you know when you're grown-up? How do you know when you've finally grown enough to be an up? And so how do you know when you reach that condition? Is that the condition to strive for? Is that the time that you say, I finally arrived? The truth of the matter is, the day you stop dreaming is the day you start dying. When I grow up, I want to be. We've coined that phrase. Truth of the matter is this. If growing up means we have to stop dreaming, then I'm never going to grow up. I'm not going to grow up. And we coined this phrase, grown-ups, that somehow you finally get to a point where you, you plateaued, you received, you got to where you're supposed to be, and it stops. Listen, as long as there's life and oxygen in your tank, you're still growing. You're still becoming more like Christ. Our American heads, however, tell us something different. We say the older that we get, the less, the more we should pull away. The more we should go on reserve. And so we have this American mindset that sometimes drives all of our thinking, and it shouldn't, that says you should strive to get to a place where you're not being used as much as you're being used now. And you should get to a place where you retire from where you're at so that you're finally grown up, you finally arrived, and now you can just coax right into the thing called death. Yet is that really... The biblical mindset or is that American mindset? Is that a godly head or American head? Dreaming should never stop. Turn to Judges 3 and we're going to read Judges chapter 3 and verses 12 to 20. We're going to see a group of people that had their dreams dashed. And we'll read it together. Judges chapter 3 verses 12 to 20. Let's read this out loud. Ready, read. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites, Amalekites, Mosquito Bites to join him, Eglon, just seeing if you're following. Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Jerah the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with a tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on his way the men who had carried it. At the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, quiet, and all his attendants left him. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, have a seat. Don't you want to read more? Don't look. (laughs) Heads up. Something's going to happen in that moment that changes everything. 
Something takes place in that defining moment when God has called us to deliver us from somewhere where he sent us to do it. And in that moment, we have a choice to make. Will I follow through? Everything's in place. Everything's in motion. But will I follow through with this call on my life, with this dream that's been birthed from God? What will I do in that moment when I have a chance to resurrect, redeemed, and change the condition that I find myself in. You have a choice to make in that moment. In order to reach your dream, the choice is yours. We can choose in that moment to believe the lies of the enemy and let him stick it to you, or you can believe the truth of our God and we can stick it to the enemy. For far too long, too many people who call themselves Christ followers are choosing to give up right at that point. It's like you're this far away from allowing God to do great things. I mean, you can sniff it out. You're face to face with your enemy. All you have to do is bust through and God's already given you the victory and you have a choice to make in that moment. Do I believe God enough that somehow in this fear-laced, faith-filled moment that he can get me through this? And so you have a choice. Will I bust through or will I remain where I'm at? Ehud was called to be the deliverer of the Israelites. What would he do in that defining moment? Yet our greatest enemy often in that moment is us or you. We have these negative thoughts that fill our mind. A daily barrage of lies from the enemy that often leave us believing that your situation could never improve. And so instead of believing truth, we start believing lies. And some of you are in this cycle of negative thoughts, negative lies. Listen, they don't come from God. So if there comes a point where you ever reason with the enemy, listen, you're on a path away from God. So they cried out to God. Israelites had done evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for 18 years they've been oppressed. And so they cry out to the Lord, and they ask for a deliverer. So God was searching at that time for someone, a woman or man to lead and men and women to trust him and carry the torch even for this generation and that generation. Look at verse 15 again in chapter three. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, a son of Jerah, the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now you might ask, why do they mention left-handed man? Now, let me give you a little Old Testament custom here. Left-handed men in the Old Testament weren't often used for front warrior kind of men. In fact, in the Old Testament, if you were a left-handed man, in some circles, in a lot of circles, you were considered a handicapped man. So why would God use a left-handed man to to redeem and to deliver a country? Why, Why did he choose them? How did he choose this man? You see, here's what I know to be true. At some point in Ehud's life, he must have been a man who trusted God. God is not going to use you to great things if you don't presently trust him. It's not like you don't say, you know what? I'm just going to see if you'll trust me with this big thing. If you're not trusting God now, I doubt very much he's going to take you to the nth level so that he can use you. Often in our circles, we, have, we say things like this. I just wish God would give me more so that one day I could give more. Let me tell you something. If you're not giving more and little, he's not going to give you more to give more when you have more. It begins with the little. And he's not going to place you in a position right now if you're already down on this and you're already 
complaining about this. He's not going to move you on if you haven't to learn to be content where you're at. So God was looking for a man. He was looking for a man that was already trusting him so that he could deliver the nation. And by the way, he's looking right now for men and women to do the same. God is constantly looking for deliverers. The text says this, that he was a Benjamite. He was left-handed. And God chose him to lead his country. I don't see anywhere when God called him that there's this explanation where Ehud says, give me all the details, tell me how it's going to be before I make a decision. He calls him, next thing you know, he's got a tribute given to the king. Eglon in the Hebrew means calf-like. In other words, this was a very big king. So he's at a crossroad. An opportunity is presented to him to deliver his people from God. What would he do with that? The future of Israel is is hinged on the back of one man, a man just like you and me. I mean, it could be a, a lady named Sally or Marcy or Heather. It could be a man named Tom or Tim or Scott. God is still looking for people to save, yes, to deliver his people. Nowhere do we see that he hesitated. The next thing we know, he's standing in the presence of the king. Let me give you Old Testament custom. If you carried a sword and you were going to visit a king during the Old Testament, the king had to know if you were coming to fight him or coming in peace. And so a custom of the day was this. If you were coming to a king or a person in peace, you would take your sword and strap it to your right thigh. And so a sword would be strapped to your right side. So anytime someone saw you enter a palace, enter a war zone, if you came with your sword strapped to your right side, they knew that you came in peace. Why? Because the majority of the warriors during this time were right-handed men. And here's why. It's very difficult. The sword, the, the, the sheath would have been on an angle. It'd be very difficult to reach in and grab the sword and pull it out for battle. And so if you came in peace... They knew you were coming in peace because by the time you finally got your sword and pulled it out, they stabbed you. So anyhow, Ehud is a left-handed man. So when he came to the gate, they patted him down, looked on the left side because your sword would be on the left side if you were coming for battle, and they didn't find a sword. Huh. So he walks in. Little did they know, but God did. He was a left-handed man. So a left-handed man could grab the sword and right quickly kill the man. And so Ehud was a left-handed warrior. Eglon sees this man coming, thinking he's coming in peace. Ehud's coming to take his life. Think about that for a second. How God chose and thought through. He had a chance to live for his God. Another thing that needs to be, we need to be reminded of. When God calls your number, are you ready to go? There's many of us who are fans in here. Many of us stay time and we worship God. Oh, I love God. God, you're great. God, you can do anything. God, I have faith in you. God, I mean, we wear the t-shirts. We got the bracelets. We got the hats. We even have tattoos that say, go Jesus. I mean, we wear them. We're a fan of God. We get together and we just worship. We're all in. And we say, God, I believe you. I'm a fan of God. We have many fans in our world. Let me, let me try to flesh this out a little bit. I am a football fan, a baseball fan, a basketball fan. I am a fan 
of the Washington Redskins. There's three of us in Indiana. And, and I really, there are. Jim, Josh, and Isaiah. <laughs> and sometimes Hannah when uh, she needs something. <laughs> but I'm a fan of the Washington Redskins. So I bought a Robert, Robert Griffin III shirt. Jersey, I like it. I, I root for the Washington Redskins. I mean, you've heard the stories. I, when they won the 1983 NFC Championship against Dallas, I skinnied up the, the, the goalposts at the end of the game. Me on one end, a guy on the other. We brought the goalposts down. And I was up there thinking, what in the world are you doing, Jimmy, after I got up there? Anyhow, I'm, I'm a Redskin fan. I have the shirts. I have the hats. And I've been loyal. I've liked the Redskins through the majority of my life through losing seasons. That had nothing to do. I was very loyal. Now, if I went to a Redskins game, I would cheer. I'm a fan. You can do it, Skin. Now that you got Robert Griffin, I believe in you. I believe. Now, many in this room are Notre Dame fans. Dear God, we pray for these people. <laughs> Thank you, Chuck. <laughs> But if you had to, ch- <laughs> Chuck and I understand. <laughs> if you had the chance to go to South Bend to watch Notre Dame play, it would be a great opportunity. It's, it's a great place to watch football. And this past year was a phenomenal year. It really was. They had a, a great team this year. It was fun. It, I was excited. It really was for Notre Dame fans because you came in a good mood to church on Sunday morning. For like, it's like, you laugh. I'm serious. But imagine you're at a game, and you're cheering your team on, and it's like you're playing USC. It's a USC-Notre Dame game. It's, it's, there's a minute left in the game. It's, you're down four points. You're on the three-yard line of USC. Your quarterback backs up, and he calls timeout. 50 seconds left in the game. You're cheering. You're excited. I believe in you. I'm a fan. We could do it. Yeah, go Notre Dame. Just Now imagine the team going to the sidelines, and the coach is drawing up this play. You're excited. Think, We're going to beat USA. USA. You're excited about it, and you're a fan. You're like, I believe in you. I'm, I'm Notre Dame. I mean, you got it tattooed on your arms. You're painted blue and gold, and just stupid stuff. I mean, you're, you're there. But imagine you watch the coach and you see him and all of a sudden he's, the players are backing away and all of a sudden the coach starts looking up in the stands and he's got a football in his hand. And before you know it, he's pushing the ushers out of the way and he's walking up in the stands and he's getting closer and closer and closer and closer and he's walking up in the stands and I need... You, to run the play. Now, how much do you love Notre Dame right now? How about you? How much do you love now? What if he walked up in the stands and he said, Tony, I want you to move from the seat to the field. And you're a Notre Dame fan. How much do you believe in Notre Dame now? The truth of the matter is this. We worship God we wear all the gear. Mighty, mighty, God almighty. Holy, holy. 
what happens when he asks you to get in the game to move from the seat to the field? Are you just a fan who believes that God can do He can do anything? But when he hands you the ball, he says, I want to do it through you. Are you just a fan who believes in God? Or are you a person who's ready? Give me the ball. And when I got the ball, I don't care. It's Eglon, Eglon, Blue Gon, or Gargon. God, if you believe it, I believe in you. I'm facing this adverse situation, this child that's run away, this relationship, this marriage, this finance. God, if you said it's possible, God, put me in the game. How many of you would he choose to give the ball to? Ehud gets chosen. Israelites deliverer is a left-handed, handicapped man. But you know what Ehud did? Ehud doesn't wait for freedom to come to him. He swims upstream to meet it. The next thing you know, he's standing in front of the king. You don't see any retreat. You don't see him handing it off to his son saying, you go. You don't see him passing it back to God. says, God, I'm not ready. God, I believe in you. You're a great God, and I know we're supposed to have faith, but I'm just not there. The next thing you know, he's got a tribute in his hand that was probably food. He's standing before the king. All the attendants are out of the room, and he has a choice to make in that moment. Will I follow through? Will I believe God? Do I believe that he can do this through me? Seriously, are you waiting for God, or is God waiting for you? Who's waiting for who right now? Has God handed the ball to you and you're waiting for him to move? And he's saying, dude, daughter, swim upstream. It's usually about that moment where your faith really surfaces. It's usually in that moment where your dream is realized or it's not realized. It's usually in that moment where you believe God or you don't believe God. It's usually in that moment where your dream assassins appear on the scene because you're opposed. It's usually about that time that your enemy speaks to you and tells you you're worthless. You've never done this. You're a left-handed person. God didn't really choose you. He meant the guy beside you. You're the last one left, so go ahead and try. It's usually at this time that the assassins of your dreams can be your friends or family that say, no, stay here. We like you here. Don't leave our school. Don't leave this workplace. Don't travel to another state. Don't take that job. Listen, this is really good. You got it good. It's usually your friends and family that hold on tightly when God said, I want you to go. And often it's just you. You kill your own dream because you begin to believe the lies of the enemy. So the king is standing there with a left-handed man supposedly standing in peace. You see, when you get your name called, you're supposed to go for it. Look again at verse 20. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of the summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, verse 21, Ehud reached with his what hand? Left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's what? 
belly. Then it says, even the handle sank in after the blade, which came out his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Eglon was a big man. So Ehud was standing in the presence of a huge man. He thinks he's coming in peace. All Eglon's attendants are gone, and he has a moment. It's that moment where we decide, I'm going for it. God, I don't, I'm not sure this is going to happen, but you're trusting in me. I believe in you. It's, that, it's like that moment where we're like an inch away. It's that moment where we're like one decision away. It's like if we make that decision, if we step through that fear, we can see God work in an unusual way. But the truth of the matter, most of us will go there and we just retreat and turn away because of fear. And so Ehud said, I came to do what I have to do. He grabs his 18-inch sword, by the way, which he made. He was prepared for battle. He pulls it out, sticks it in the belly of the king, the fat envelops around it and it comes out his back. Now, the king is dying. The attendants are outside. It's a critical moment. Picture how quiet it is in this room. Picture Ehud as he's standing there. How did he go from a construction worker? How did he go from a name that wasn't even in the phone book of of this country? How did he go and all of a sudden be a left-handed person and stand in the presence of the king and become a deliverer? How did he get there? I think he got there because he had already been trusting God. And God noticed him. I think he lived his life looking through the windshield instead of the rear view mirror. You see, if we spend all of our time driving our lives, looking at our rear view mirror, we're going to end up wrecked. But if we're pressing forward and looking at the prize that's out ahead of us, straining eagerly, trying to get to Jesus, we will finish where we're supposed to and we'll let the baggage and junk of our past not thwart us from being who we're supposed to be and accomplishing what we're supposed to accomplish. When his number was called, he didn't tell God all the reasons he couldn't show up. Or be there. Or I got this on my schedule. Or I'm busy. He just did it and the nation was about to be saved. Let me ask you a personal question. Where's your neck on the line for Jesus at right now? Well, you're like, you got fear, you're giant right in front of you. Where right now are you pushing back darkness? Are you accomplishing a dream? What are you doing right now? Like, boy, it's make or break. Is there anything in your life right now? Or are you one of those grown-ups? Or are you still growing up? Fear could have enveloped him. He could have retreated. But he moved on. You see, most never get here because they're not trusting God now. Look what happens next. Verse 23, then Ehud went... Out to the porch, he shut the doors of the upper room behind him, and he locked them. Now, just pause for a second. Just picture that. Imagine the letter that he sent his kids and his wife if he was married before he left. And he said, you know what, babe? I might not be back, but I want you to know I'm going out in a flurry because Jesus or God believes in me. Imagine the letter he left for his kids and the hugs he gave him. He said, daddy's gone, and he's battling for God. I'm going to save a nation. 
Imagine that letter, imagine that hug as he left his family, as they saw their dad, the deliverer, the man willing to be on the front lines. Imagine that conversation. And then imagine as he's standing on the porch here after the king is dying, no one is there. Imagine that moment, you know what it's like when you're all by yourself and you know God just used you in an incredible way where you're just doing the burning. (laughs) Imagine that moment where God did what he said he would do through me. Imagine that moment before he took off and jumped off of this porch where the king was dead and the people would no longer have to live in oppression. Imagine that feeling of, yes, Lord. You see, it's those kind of moments that deeply inspire me and inspire others. You see, your actions can inspire others to do the same. Look what happens next. So he's on the porch Verse 24, after he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room. What were they? Locked. They said, he must be relieving himself. Jim Brown paraphrase, he's going to the bathroom. In the inner room of the house, it says they waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them, and there they saw their Lord fall into the floor, what? Picture that moment. I mean, you're the attendant. You're supposed to be, I'm not going in there. You go in there. I'm not seeing him on the pot. You get in there. They want to go in and protect. And so they're like, not yet. Five more minutes. It's, it's all longer it should take. And so they're standing there. They're banging at the door. And finally said, get the key. And when they walk in, their king is dead. And meanwhile, Ehud, he is on the loose. He's running. Look what happens next. Verse 26 says, while they waited, Ehud got away. He passed the idols and escaped to Syria. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill countries of Ephraim. And the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading there. Then he says this, follow me, he what? Now, how did he go from a no name to trusting God? And now he's given orders in this country. (laughs) Now he went there. When God called his name, he got out of his seat, he ran to the playing field, and he scored a touchdown with God. And now the country says, wow, he's got faith. I'll follow you. Look what happens next. He says, follow me. For the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and taken possession of the fords of the Jordan led, that led to Moab. They, they allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. And not a man escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. How did he do it? He had courage. Courage was dripping from his spine. God called him. He went. He didn't ask questions. He just did it. He believed. He believed not only in his God, but he did things with his God. And he did it for a group of people who had run away from God for 18 years. Sometimes that gets lost in this story. He could have said, man, why why rescue these people? I mean, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and all they want now is to be rescued again so that they can just do evil in the eyes of the Lord again. But he stepped to the plate, and he saved a nation. He did it for them. He did it for other people. 
He did it so other people could be rescued. He did it for others. He did it for a country. He did it for people that probably had run away from God. He did it for them. He did it for you. Who are you doing it for? Who are you paving the way for in the next generation? I mean, even this building, by the way. Even like this chair right here. How do you think this chair got here? You think just like seven years ago, God just said, there's chair. How do you think that chair got there? How do you think this auditorium got here? How do you think your children are being ministered to? Your teens are being ministered? How do you think all these rooms in this building got here? Someone sacrificed. Someone gave money. Someone gave up a vacation. Someone said, I believe in the mission. Someone gave up for people they never met before. And so you and I sit here today because someone did it for you. Who are you doing it for? Ehud did it for not only this group, but the next 80 years. Who are you doing it for? You know, I stand here today as pastor of Grace Community Church, and I stand on the shoulders of a group of people in 1947 who circled hands on a piece of property on a yet-to-be-built building and said, I believe that God can rescue Goshen and lost people can come to Christ. And so year after year, day after day, week after week, pastor after pastor, people after people believed and kept the mission alive and gave and served and sacrificed, and we stand here today because they did it for us. Who are you doing it for? I mean, God loves raising up deliverers, not just so we can shout our own tune and do it for us. He raises up deliverers to rescue his people now and the people yet to be born. So I was thinking about this. I, just because it's this day, I was thinking about some of these men and all these men that, that were here today, and I got to thinking, I wonder who did it for him and him. I wonder who was the person who told him about Jesus. I wonder who was the person that encouraged them when they were down. I wonder who was the person that said, you got what it takes. I wonder who the person that said, man, hold on, it's worth it. I wonder who was a person when they were little that says, you need to find Jesus. I wonder who was a person who paid their way to camp. I wonder who was a person that, that picked them up and introduced them to Jesus and brought them to church. I wonder who was a person that gave them a job so they could support their family. I wonder who was all the people behind them that did it for them. I wonder how many more of those would do it for others. And what would happen if we lived a life where we just did it for everybody else? I'll tell you what would happen. This world will be resurrected to Jesus Christ in an unusual way. So I got to thinking that just because it's Fight Club, I'm not here to elevate Fight Club. I'm elevate the principles behind it and the men in it. I was at some ministry meetings this weekend in Chicago. I'm from Indiana. I was in Chicago. And there was a guy from Philadelphia that happened to be the same place I was at. He walks out one day, and he's got a Fight Club shirt on. Here's a guy with a Fight Club shirt that's from Philadelphia, that's in Chicago. I'm from Indiana, and he's in Chicago, and we're together, and it hit me. Someone did it for him. And I ran into another lady at these ministry meetings, and she says, Jim, i got to tell you a story. She said, 
I'm from Ohio. She says, I was in a store in Ohio, and our church is doing Fight Club in their church. It's the second chapter. She says, so I was in Fight Club, or I was in this, this, this store, and this lady walked up to me that I didn't know, 20 miles from the church, comes up to me and says, hey, your church does Fight Club, doesn't it? She said, yeah, it does. She said, my husband's in Fight Club. He doesn't go to your church, but you know what? I want to tell you something. I'm glad your church is doing it for him because he loves me like I've never been loved before. He's chasing after Jesus like he's never chased Jesus before. And I just wanted you to let you know that I'm grateful that you're doing that for my husband. So I got to thinking, how did that all happen? Let me tell you about some people that you might not be aware of. Because sometimes people who do it for other people Never get recognition. I don't know if you know this, but there was a dream for a men's ministry tool to be developed at Grace, and it happened to be Fight Club. So we needed to develop a team. So we assembled a team of men. We wanted to develop four men by men who had been through it. And so we put a team together, and these men met for five to six months, roughly six to ten meetings at 4 a.m. in the morning developing a product called Fight Club. We had engineers. We had web designers. We had photographers. We had people that, that, that knew how to work with cardboard. We had people who were lawyers. We had this team that met at 4 a.m. month after month after month to develop a kit so that a guy from Philadelphia... A man in Ohio, a man in Lithuania, and a dude in Haiti could find Jesus and chase hard after him. They did it for them. And so I want to tell you about just a few people who did it for others. Because you might not know this. And I want to give God the credit through them. Here are some of the men that developed the kit for Fight Club. Chad Yorty. Michael Metz. Jeff Slayball, John Dar, Neil Slayball, Rusty Edwards, Jeff Tinsley, Ross Elias, and Boyd Smith. I tell you this, and I close with this. If they didn't do it, then all those other lives would never be impacted. When they were asked to serve, they said, I'll move from the seat to the playing field so that others can be impacted. Jesus, help us today. I pray, Jesus, that we would move from being a fan to a warrior on the field. I pray, Jesus, that when our name is called, that we'll just go and we'll believe. I pray, Jesus, that we'll develop a mindset that says, I'm going to do it for you and you and you and you. And I pray that dream by dream is realized because collectively we chase each other's dreams down and we make them happen. God, thank you for Ehud. It was willing to step up and stand out and face the king of the nation face to face and trust you and a nation was saved. In Jesus' name, amen.